0: Um, last night when we did the Saturday night service, we're, uh, by the way, we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians, and uh, when we got into this teaching that we're going to look at this morning, we ended up staying till about 8.30 last night because there were so many questions afterwards, and because we're going to be talking about predestination and election and looking at Ephesians chapter 1, so don't be surprised if your brain begins to smoke at some point, Okay. It's just a lot of, lot of uh, deep thinking that's going to be required to focus on Ephesians chapter 1. And there's a very specific reason that I've chosen this particular passage to look at. Because we're on the, the threshold of a brand new year. And with 2013 is a, a brand new beginning. 2012 has gone as great as that year was. I personally believe it was a great year. Everything may not have gone the way that you wanted it to... But we had food on the tables. We had air in our lungs and, and a capacity to work and to serve. And so it's been a great year. But 2013 has wonderful opportunities before us. We don't know what God holds in store. But I believe he wants to do powerful things. And I believe that you can have the best year ever of your life. If you'll approach this passage of Scripture the same way I'm looking at it and understanding what God wants to do through you, and what He's done for you, it'll radically change your thinking. So I don't want to take this lightly. I'm going to ask you to pray with me that we will approach this passage appropriately and that God's Spirit would be the one who would teach us. So would you join me in doing that? Father, regardless of what last year held or the year before that, I believe what You have in store for each of us individually and for Your church can be the best year ever. You are the God who says you want to work powerfully through those who are loyal and faithful to you. Even when things seem like they are causing us to despair, Father, you say you're still at work. So, Father, what we ask is that you would make that true in our life this morning and in the week ahead of us, in the month ahead of us, that you will give us a capacity to see you at work in the midst of every circumstance Every situation, no matter if it's a victory or a defeat from our perspective, God, we ask that you would be at work, that you would accomplish your purposes. So, Father, I ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll give us a fresh set of eyes this morning, a fresh set of ears, and a heart attitude that's tuned into you. God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My cousin, Pat. Um, when we were teenagers, decided he wanted to try and raise some ducks. And so I became familiar with the habits and activities of ducks, uh, just because I spent a lot of time with my cousin Pat. We did a lot of fishing and hunting together. And I learned very quickly that ducks have a particular habit when babies are born, baby ducklings are hatched. They are immediately imprinted. Uh, That phrase means that what they recognize when they come out of the egg and they see immediately and they identify that thing as their mother, they're imprinted for life. And so that's what they identify as their mother. That works great, but occasionally it backfires. And one particular time it backfired when a duckling came out of the egg, and the first thing it looked into was the eyes of a dog. And it believed that that dog, that collie that it was looking at, was its mother, And every place that dog went, that duckling went. So if the dog went out to go to the bathroom, the duck went outside with it. If the duck was intimidated and scared, it ran to the mother dog for protection. The duck slept with the dog at night. In the heat of the day, when the dog would go under the porch, the duck would go under the porch. When the duck barked, the dog quacked. The duck soon became an adult duck. And it realized it could do the things that a dog did to some degree. And so when a car would pull in the driveway and the dog would explode from under the porch, the duck would explode from under the porch, white feathers going every place with its wings flapping. And the dog would run up to the car and begin barking at the occupants of the car. And the duck would do the exact same thing except quacking at the car. And so while the dog would intimidate the driver, the duck would begin pecking at the tires, (laughs) trying to intimidate the driver. However... The duck still liked to do duck things. It liked to go into the pond and swim in the water. It still liked to try and grab bugs from the bottom of the pond. And it still liked to quack. Sometimes it thought it was a dog. Sometimes it thought it was a duck. Christians very much have an identity crisis like the duck because we have been born into a fallen world We have been imprinted with sin. We have been imprinted at birth, born into sin. In sin did my mother conceive me, Scripture says. And so Scripture says we're a new creature. We're a a new creation in Christ, yet we struggle with this new identity because of the imprint. Matter of fact, Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. We're no longer what we once were. However, because of imprinting, we still act like the thing that we think we are because it's our human nature rather than what we really are in Christ because Scripture says we're a new creation. And when we least expect it, a car pulls into the driveway of our life And we want to come out from under the porch exploding and quacking for all we're worth because that thing that just pulled in isn't supposed to be there and we don't like it. And then we back off and pedal backwards and realize I wasn't supposed to do that. I'm supposed to be swimming in clear lakes and soaring above the trees and quacking instead of harassing the cat and chasing cars. Our new creation within us has to give us a a new framework for thinking. So I chose Ephesians in order to help us with that framework of thinking. I'm gonna ask you to do something right now, physical thing that I want you to do. Whether you brought your own Bible with you or there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, what I want you to do is hold it in your hands. Just reach out and grab it. I'm not talking about your iPhones, okay? I know you got some of you got your Bibles on your phones. There's something about holding God's written word in your hand, So if there's not enough in the pew rack in front of you, just reach over to the person next to you and place your hand on their Bible, okay? It's not going to creep them out, all right? I'm I'm saying that prophetically, all right? (laughs) Just just trust me. Just put your hand on a Bible. And I want to first of all encourage you, if you can commit to the next four weeks, to be here in these services and to hear what we have to say about Ephesians, what God wants to say to you, Bring a Bible with you to church. If you don't own a Bible, there's Bibles in the Purex for you. You can have one of those. It's a gift from New Hope. But this thing that you hold in your hand right now, the thing that you possess, is a source of incredibly, immeasurably deep knowledge. And you can possess it in your heart. A knowledge down deep inside you so that you know that you know that you know that even in the darkest of times, Even when you want to explode from out from under the porch, you matter to God. And his story is written here for you. So I encourage you to bring your Bible to church because I believe 2013 can be the best year ever of your life. If you can take the truths of what we're going to look at in Ephesians and bury them deep within you so that you know who you are in Christ. And here's the truth, Ephesians causes us to see who we really are in Jesus, and if we understand it, and if we believe it, then we'll be better able to live this truth. And here's the truth you're going to hear this morning and next week, God's nature is to meet your need right at the point of your need. That's God's nature. It's not his only nature. But God's nature is to meet my need. So I'm going to ask you the question, what is your need this morning? And how can God meet that need? I don't mean your want. What is your need? So you can put the Bible down. Just hold it for a minute. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1 in just a minute. But here's how Ephesians starts. It actually begins in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18. A guy by the name of Paul Meets a young married couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila join together with Paul, and they go to a town called Ephesus. And Paul, when he gets to Ephesus, the city in what we call modern day Turkey today, he goes to a Jewish synagogue. He wants to hang out with the Jews and begin to talk to them about who Jesus is. So he goes into the synagogue. He explains who Jesus is. The Jewish people respond with such power to him that they plead with him, would you stay and teach us? And Paul declines the offer, but he leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila, and the church in Ephesus starts. But Paul makes them a promise. He says, I will come back to you. And he does. He comes back for three years and he becomes the pastor of that church and he teaches them. Now, ultimately, Paul returns to Jerusalem. He begins teaching about Christ. He's arrested. He's brought up on false charges. And as a result of the charges against him, he appeals to Caesar. Every Roman citizen had the right to do that. I want a trial before Caesar. So they arrest him, they haul him off to Rome they put him in prison and it's from prison that paul writes the book that you have in your hands it's a prison letter as a matter of fact there's three prison epistles in the scripture paul meets a young man by the name of onesimus while he's in prison in rome and onesimus is a runaway slave paul leads him to christ and he says to onesimus you know what onesimus you have a responsibility to go back to your master and make things right with him. I know you don't want to, but it's your responsibility in Christ to do this. So Paul sits down and he writes a letter to Onesimus' master whose name is Philemon. So the book of Philemon that you have in the Bible, just one chapter, is Paul's letter to Onesimus' master. And while he's on his way to see his master, Paul realizes that he has to go through a city called Colossae. So Paul writes a letter called Colossians, the book of Colossians. And he also recognizes that Onesimus has to go through the port city of Ephesus, and it clicks with him. He's got to go see my church. So he writes what you hold in your hand, the letter to the Ephesians. What do we know about the people of Ephesus? Well, it's a city of 300,000, much like Metro Lansing. We're 320,000 people in the metro area. They're a city of 300,000 people. And in the city of 300,000 people, it's extremely abundant. It's a capital city of a Roman province. As a matter of fact, what we call modern-day Turkey within the region of Syria, they had control because they were a leading trade center. A very, very wealthy, beautiful, sophisticated city, but pagan to the core. And they really needed Christ in that city. Now, for Paul, the possibility of execution is very real He's just within years or maybe even months by the time this is written of his life coming to an end. You would never guess what you hold in your hands has been written by a man who's held in chains because his heart and his mind is focused on the kingdom of God, not on the fact that he's sitting in chains. And he's about to take us to the very throne room of God. And if you've never seen it this way before, I want you to see it this way. He's about to show you the vast, storehouse of treasure that belongs to you who are in Jesus Christ. Go with me now to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. You'll see it up on the screen as well. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 starts this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, right away, we got this dual source of authority. Paul's background is this he was trained in the school of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most highly regarded college professors of that time. If you wanted to learn under the guy who was the teacher of all teachers, you would go to Gamaliel. And Paul trained under him. What did he study? Well, we know that he studied what we call today the humanities in college. We we would term it that. Paul also studied rabbinic studies. And he became a rabbi of rabbis, a Jew of Jews. As a matter of fact, he climbed the ranks so quickly in understanding the law that he was elevated to the supreme court in the land called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin recognized he was so gifted that they sent him out on their behalf to represent them to interpret the law. Paul was a powerful intellectual individual. But that's not what he cites here. He says, I'm an apostle. Nor does he tell us that he went out and studied for three years without interruption in the deserts of Arabia. After he came to Christ, you know that he went into solitude? He was so shocked with the things that he had uncovered and the truth that he saw. He went into the deserts in Arabia by himself and studied for three years to make sure he got everything right and understood it the way that it was. And then when he came out, he became the co-pastor of a church along with Barnabas in the region of Syria. So Paul tells us, though, that he's writing with the authority of apostle. What is that? Apostolos. The definition on the screen, you'll see, means one that has been sent. Paul is one among the 11 who were chosen by Jesus. He was added to the original 11 as an apostle, a title that belonged to those who were the foundation of the church. And what does he say to us? Grace and peace to you. And that is much more than just a general greeting church. It's not like a hallway conversation. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Well, have a good day. That's not what's going on here. Grace is something that you stand in. It's what God has given to you. Grace, you stand in grace, and therefore, because you stand in grace, God's gift to you, you have peace with God. That's what he's acknowledging here. And he's saying our source is coming from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all blessing, is the same source as my authority. I'm coming to you with this authority as an apostle, and he's the source of your grace. So here's number one and number two in a nutshell. Understand Ephesus. Understand new hope. You stand fully covered in all the blessings of your Father and your Savior, Jesus Christ. We may not apprehend all of those, But we are covered in these blessings, and we're going to look at what those are in just a minute, because that is his nature, that is my need. God reaches out and covers me in his grace, because I am a person who needs him at the point of my need. His nature is to meet my need. So go with me to verse 3 now. Because then he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, if you read ahead later today, I don't encourage you to do it right now, but you read verses 3 through 14, and you're going to say, Paul, will you stop drinking caffeine? My goodness, this is ridiculous. It's a run-on sentence. It doesn't stop at verse 4 or verse 5. Verse 3 goes all the way to verse 14 with no period. Now, in the English language, we're fond of putting in periods and punctuation points like commas, but Paul didn't do that. Why is that specific to him? Because he was so overwhelmed with the enormity of God's plan and what he's going to do for his church. What he's looking at in verses 3 through 14 is God's eternal purpose for the church. If you grabbed one of the note sets when you came in this morning with your bulletin, You'll see three points in there specifically what we're going to look at today, next week, and the week after. Because in verses 3 through 6, Paul's saying the past aspect of what God has done for the church is election. And so that's election, predestination, what we're getting into today. Next week, verses 6 through 11, it's the present aspect, which is redemption. What do you have this great gift? And verses 12 and 14 shows the future aspect, which is your inheritance. What are you getting in heaven? So let's break it down in verse 3. First and foremost, he talks about God first because he's the blessed one. Now I assume most of you in here have been to funerals and you know what a eulogy is. You've been present when a eulogy is read. I want you to see the word that Paul is using when he says, blessed be the God. The word is eulogio. In the Greek language, very specific meaning, a message of praise and commendation. A declaration of a person's goodness. There's a funeral that took place here in the church yesterday for a dear saint of the Lord, Cindy. And when Cindy Edwards passed away, the funeral was arranged for her to be held yesterday. And when we speak of someone in a funeral about their character and their nature, we call it a eulogy. It reaps from this word, eulogio. So Paul is using this supreme eulogy for God alone, not because God has died, but because he's deserving of praise. It's focused on him. He starts out that way because the Father not only does good things, he is good to a degree of which no other being can measure up to. So when you sing in worship service in here, nothing is more appropriate for God's people to praise Him fully and to sing of His attributes. So Michael chose that song, 10,000 Reasons, because you're rich in mercy. You're slow to anger for all your loving kindness. You're eulogizing God. You're speaking of His goodness through song. Uh, Maybe you don't like to sing. Well, speak it out loud then like Paul did because this is what he's doing here. He's blessing God in all things. In your prosperity or in your pain, in your victory or in your adversity, we praise God because he's good and he's worthy of it. Even from a prison cell, when you're being held in chains in a dungeon, so you don't see this guy as a prisoner, do you? He's praising God. So even from your hospital bed, even when your checkbook is empty, you can eulogio him because he's supremely worthy of it. Now the next phrase I'm going to use that's attributed to what God is is not an English word. Um, and don't send me letters this week because I know the word "blesser" doesn't exist. But God is also the blesser. That's what He goes on to tell us, consistent with His perfection and the fact that the one who is to be supremely eugeo is also the one who's supremely the blesser. Because in verse three He says, "Who has blessed us?" Well, who's the us, church? Yeah, that's right, us. You're sharper than the nine o'clock crowd. Good for you. Okay? They just sat there and <laughs> stared at me. I think it was too early in the morning. Don't tell them I said that, all right? So he has blessed us. That's, that's us, the believers. He's, he's given us blessing. God has blessed, and Paul says it in verse one, the saints in Christ. Did you know that God's plan is to bless you? Look with me on the screen. Galatians 3.9. Those who are of faith are blessed. Now, we're going to explore that just a little bit further, but here's what it says in James 1.17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, I have this habit when I'm with my kids, especially with my sons, if I'm holding some new gadget, like I've, I got my Mac uh, eight months ago or so, and I'm holding it in my lap, and I said, isn't this cool? Look at what God created. And my sons will always push back, I say, God didn't create that, and I say, I beg to differ. Who created the aluminum and put it in the ground that we would have that aluminum case on the cover of that laptop? Who created the elements to be able to manufacture plastic? Who gave man the intellect that he would be able to develop something as complicated and confusing that I don't understand as micro elements to be able to process a computer? God. Now, what we do with those things is corrupt it. We cause some things that are good to be used for evil, but God says every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. I don't know if you can apply that to chocolate milkshakes or not, but I'm I'm thinking God says every good thing, every perfect gift, anything that's good in your life is from God. Every blessing. So God alone blesses you because he is the source of all blessing. Now, here's how we need to get this straight in our head. When we eulogio God, when we bless God, we speak good of Him. When He blesses us, He transfers good things to us. So we speak good of Him, He returns that with action towards us. We bless Him with words, He blesses us with action. Because all we can do is speak well of him. In and of ourselves, we have nothing. And God needs nothing. So he looks at us as people who can't necessarily give him anything other than how we witness and how we speak of him. And he takes that as praise. And in turn, when we bless him, he in himself lacks nothing, but he can give back. So when he blesses us, the situation is reversed. He, He turns action back to us because that is his nature That is my need to meet me right at the point of my need. So verse 3 goes on to say, what are those things that he blesses you with? With every spiritual blessing. Uh, It's in your notes, but it's not going to be on the screen, the word pneumotikos. And every time the word spiritual blessing is used in the Bible, it's always associated with an activity of the Holy Spirit. And and the Holy Spirit, meaning he's the origin or the source of all these blessings that come to you. So let's go on. Verse 3 also says where it's located. In the heavenly places. Now, I know immediately you're thinking in your mind, well, what does that mean? It's future? It's like in God's throne room? No, heavenly places is is much more than heaven. It encompasses the entire realm of God, his complete domain over the natural and the supernatural. Let's look at it this way. Christ is king, right? Participatory. Christ is king, right? Right? Okay, so if Christ is king, we are citizens of his realm. His realm is not only the heavenly places where he dwells, but he's Lord and master over everything. Uh, Let me expand on it this way. If I travel overseas to go abroad and I get a passport, I leave our country and go to another country, I'm still an American citizen. I'm no less an American citizen standing in Africa or in the Antarctic than what I am in the United States. And the passport is merely merely validation of that. So I'm entitled to all the rights and privileges that citizenship holds. In some countries, if I can get into an embassy, I'm entitled to all those things because I'm an American citizen. It doesn't change what I am, even if I'm in a foreign land. Now the same is true as citizens of God's dominion. Christians hold all the rights And all the privileges that citizenship grants to us, even while we're living in a strange and foreign land, we're still under God's realm, still in his dominion. So here's the key to living as a heavenly citizen while living in a very unheavenly situation, planet Earth, a fallen world. And the key is this, walking by the power of the Holy Spirit which God says we receive our God's actions toward us by living in the power of his spirit when we're in communion with him. Well, that comes through working through his word, being in prayer, walking in a holy way, a holy life. So he tells us where this all comes from is in Christ. That's how he ends verse three. The instrument is Jesus. Jesus is the source. We possess every spiritual blessing because we're in Christ. Did you know that you are literally grafted into Christ? That's what the Scriptures tell us, this right here. 1 Corinthians 6.17, the one who joins himself to the Lord, that's the word graft, to the Lord is one spirit with him. That means where you go, he goes with you. Makes you think about the places you go, doesn't it? Where you go, he goes with you. Romans 8:16 says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That means Christ's riches are your riches. Christ's resources, our resources. His righteousness, your righteousness. You are clothed in righteousness. That's how God sees you. So his power, your power. Now, he talks about the spiritual blessings in detail in verse four. So you'd look at them and say, spiritual blessing, what are those? Well, Paul's about to give us a glimpse of eternity past. Look with me at verse four. The very first spiritual blessing, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, if we are to be honest, we would say, well, I don't always feel blessed. I don't always feel spiritually blessed. Anybody honest with me this morning? You feel that way sometimes? It's three of you. Okay, four, five. The rest of you, I know that you feel that way too. We don't always feel that way. And so as a result, we wonder... Did I somehow miss out on the blessings? I don't understand quite what this is saying. Well, to make sure we do not misunderstand it, Paul spells it out. He says, first of all, look on the screen, verse 4, he chose us in him. That's your first blessing. First and biggest blessing. Blessing. So he re- we received, number one, we receive the blessing of being chosen. You've been adopt, adopted by God as one of his spiritual children. Flesh it out this way. If I belong to Jesus, right now my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The same is true of you. If you belong to Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That can't ever change. And Scripture says that happened even before the world began, that God knew and predestined those who would come to him. That begins to make our wheels turn in our brain, doesn't it? So God chose us to belong, not because we're more worthy, but because God willed to. This is an incomprehensible truth to our finite minds. And we really wrestle with this, but it's one of the most repeated truths in the Bible. God's nature, his pattern of behavior, is reaching down and drawing to himself those whom he has chosen. Why? We're going to get to predestination in just a minute. Why did he do that? Verse 4 tells us that we would be holy and blameless. That's the second blessing. The choosing makes us holy and blameless now this word blameless is one that we really have a hard time with amamos look at the definition for it without blemish or spotless only for one reason because jesus was without blemish and spotless the lamb of god slain for the world who took my place So that immediately makes you think of the Jewish sacrificial system. Every family having to bring a spotless lamb to the temple where it would be sacrificed on behalf of the family. Well, we look at this and we say, I don't feel blameless. Matter of fact, I feel pretty spotted. Why? Well, we know in our daily living we are far from God's holy standard. We are far from being blameless. We come into church, and before we take communion, we even have to pray. God, deal with me on these issues I've got going on in my life. So We don't feel blameless, but the truth of Scripture is the unworthy have been declared worthy. So what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about our position, not our practice. Yes, we're supposed to be working towards being holy, keep striving towards the full measure of the maturity of Christ. But he's talking about our position, who we have become in Jesus Christ. That's why your salvation is secure and Satan himself cannot take it away because your salvation is in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you, not what you have done on your own. It's not possible. So number three, the third blessing, takes me so far beyond my comprehension that my brain hurts when I try and think about it. It takes me beyond understanding, but I do grasp the consequence of it. In Christ, I have his righteousness imputed to me at the moment of salvation. Instantly, my sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. That is what is true for you as well. So he can say to us the third blessing The result of those two first ones put together, that he chose us and that he's made us holy and blameless, the result is my position in Christ, who I am before God. Here's a a truth of Scripture. We had the funeral for Cindy yesterday. Some of the family members are here today, and they can attest to this truth as well. Cindy's funeral was yesterday, but she passed away a week ago, and at the moment she drew her last breath on planet Earth, she was instantly in the presence of her Lord, who could say to her, You are holy and blameless. Enter into the rest that has been prepared for you. That's a truth of Scripture. Every one of us will stand before our Maker one day, and if we die in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior He can say to us, you are holy, you are blameless, you are spotless because of the work of Jesus Christ and what he did for you. That's why number three blows my mind that regardless of who I am, God sees me not as the dog and the duck under the porch, but he sees me as the one who's been redeemed a new creation. And in him, I'm holy and blameless. Now, if the first portion didn't make your mind hurt, here we go into predestination. Okay, Go with me to verse 5. We're only doing verse 5 and verse 6. That's where we're going to stop today. But what we're looking at here, let me back up. If you're new to church, these, these words predestination and election can sound like really big churchy words. I promise you they are confusing for people who have been in church 20 years. Predestination and election is a mystery. You're going to see why in just a minute. These verses, 5 and 6, reveal to us the ancient part of God's plan in forming His church. Go with me to verse 5. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now remember, Ephesians is written to one of the most well-taught churches that ever existed in the history of the world. They had Paul as their pastor for three years. Can you imagine? After that, Apollos. After that, Timothy. First and second Timothy were written to Timothy while he's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Three benchmarks of the Bible are the pastor of your church, one of the most well-taught churches in the history of the world. Paul personally spent three years teaching them, and yet here you see that he neither defines nor defends these positions. He simply declares them as truth. Unapologetically, he calls truth, truth. So here's the three forms of election that we find in the Bible. Three types, it's in your notes, you're going to see it on the screen as well. Three times of election. The first one is theocratic election. Uh, That is when God is dealing with mankind, like when he dealt with Moses and the children of Israel. It was a theocratic decision on the part of God to choose that nation for himself. Here's an example of that. It comes from Deuteronomy 7.6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. See the word Chosen. And we have no problem when God elects that, right, that way. He's elected them. God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Understand that had no bearing on their personal salvation. What he's talking about is they would be the representatives for him on planet earth. Racial descent from Abraham does not mean spiritual descent. They are not entitled to eternal life with God. They were a chosen people to represent God on planet Earth. So that is theocratic election. Vocational election. Vocational election is when God chooses someone for a specific calling. And think of the tribe of Levi. Got 12 tribes, the sons of Israel. God says, you know what? You guys right there, Levi, your descendants are going to be the servants before me in the synagogue, in the temple. Vocationally, I have chosen you. But that's not a guarantee of salvation either, is it? God chose the 12 disciples. Jesus himself chose 12 disciples. He elected them to come and work with him vocationally, but only 11 of them got it, right? One blew it off. Said, no, no, I'm not going there. I'm not interested. Judas walked away, even though God had vocationally chose him. So we have the third form, which is the ultimate form of election, which is salvation. And Jesus himself spoke to this a number of times. Specifically, we see it right here in John 6. John 6, 44, he said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus is telling us exactly what Paul is speaking of in verse 5. The the Greek word that's associated with this is the word helikuo, And helikuo is talking about An insatiable drawing. Look at the definition, actually, the way that the ancient Greeks used it. It's the idea of an irresistible force. And it was used in ancient Greek literature of a desperately hungry individual being drawn to the food. Now, they didn't necessarily have to take the food. Nobody forced it into their mouth. But they're drawn to it. Let me use a more modern illustration. We have salvage yards. Forgive me for the very weak analogy, but this is one that will help us get our mind around this. We have salvage yards, and in those salvage yards, like there's one here in Lansing on the north end, they have huge electromagnetic units that will draw metal. Now, when the power is turned on to that electromagnet, There's a hum, you can hear it in the yard when you're standing there, I've been there myself, and all the ferrous metals, all the raw base steels are drawn to the power of that magnet. Now, if we think in terms of how God draws us, we could say, here's the weak part, we have a base metal in us that has tuned us into God. God. This base metal, God says in Romans 1, makes man without an excuse. God says he has placed eternity in the mind and the heart of man. Romans 1 says that there is no one, no one who will stand before me without excuse saying, I didn't know. God says, my creation revealed it, my word revealed it, you will be without excuse. So this helicuo is talking about this irresistible force God has placed within us. Here's an even weaker part of the illustration. God is the North Pole and your internal compass is tuned to him. But we choose to ignore that drawing at times. Aluminum in the yard is not drawn by the magnet's power. It just rejects it, even though it's a medal. So here's the concept: election draws God, draws, draws to God those whom he predetermined. Yet the same presence has no effect on other people. And that is a mystery. Such a mystery that it, it's it's so hard to quantify in our mind. And here's the temptation for us as humans: the temptation is to think. Mark, that sounds like God's choosing sides for basketball. It's like he's got shirts and skins. You, 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 you. No, not you. You, 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 you. I'm not, I'm not trying to point at anybody when I say not you. Okay. It, it sounds like that, doesn't it? But that's not the case. That's not what's going on here. Let me show you where our responsibility falls in this because Jesus spoke to that also. John three sixteen. Jesus said, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life we've got that responsibility we've got to put forth that effort to believe now jesus goes one step further and he gives us both truths in one verse look with me on the screen at john six thirty seven. all that the father gives me shall come sounds like predestination right all that the father gives me shall come to me and the one who comes to me meaning you got responsibility i will certainly not cast out now this is the problem It feels like God's election and man's free will are at opposite ends and irreconcilable truths. And from our limited perspective, this is why we had an hour of question and answer last night in the Saturday night service. From our limited perspective, they are opposite and irreconcilable. And the danger is in attempting to reconcile these two objectives And it ends in compromising one truth in favor of another and thereby a weakening of God's word. Let this rest with you. Verse four says, he chose us. Here's a much bigger issue. God not only chose us by himself, but for himself. What does that mean? His primary purpose in election is the praise of his own glory, the eulogio, to declare his goodness. God elected us before the creation, before the fall, before the covenants, before the law, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before your birth. So Mark, before March 28th, it doesn't matter what year, he chose me. My responsibility was to respond to that choosing. Above all, He's elected us for His glory. And you'd say, Mark, where do you get that from? Now, Scripture speaks very clearly to it, but here's one example. 2 Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose. God's plan. Now, this is the struggle. Capital M, capital Y, capital S, capital T, Capital E, capital R, capital Y. If you went to school, you know that spells mystery. Your education paid off. It is a mystery. And as humans, we are so uncomfortable with mystery. This is what J.I. Packer said about this a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men and a consequent subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic because we cannot stand unresolved mystery. There's this intense desire to oversimplify the Bible and thereby we weaken God's Word and it's presumptuous and unfaithful to God's Word to take out either one of the elements. The mind of God, and we need to rest with this, the mind of God infinitely surpasses the mind of man. Personally, I think the issue of predestination and election is one of the greatest evidences of the authenticity of the Bible being God's Word because there is no way any man on planet Earth would ever dream that up. We just wouldn't do it. We want to resolve mystery. It's one of the greatest evidences of God's Word being God's Word. That's who He is. So it's not that God's predestination eliminates my choice. I just want to be really clear, especially if you're new to church or new in the faith. It is not that God's predestination eliminates my choice in this. His sovereignty and my response are inseparably linked in salvation. How they operate together, only the mind of God knows. So here's where we end this morning we end with a beginning. Begin by recognizing this fundamental truth comes from Isaiah 55, 9. Remember this as you work through Ephesians with me. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remember this, church. Our ability to comprehend God's truth has been limited by the fall of man in the garden. We cannot comprehend things the way that we might have at one time that's why Paul said this in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. Real world. We as modern two thousand and twelve citizens living in the United States smile and chuckle to ourselves when we think back to the ancients who believed that the earth was flat. Until one day when a guy by the name of Columbus sailed beyond the horizon and came back and said, you know what, there's a horizon because it's round. I just kept going. And some of them refuted and said, "We well, just didn't sail far enough. What happened? Their information was very limited. Do you know that it was only 100 years ago that here in the United States, people actually believed that if you traveled faster than 35 miles an hour, your heart would stop beating? When the auto industry came into existence, people began experimenting with speeds, and individuals, medical doctors, actually said, don't do it. The human heart will stop. You'll faint. You'll pass out. You can't drive at that speed. What happened? Limited information. The same is true when we come to these issues. We have limited information. We see through a mirror dimly, but then, in the future, I'm going to know fully. So, here's where we end. Ephesians unapologetically challenges the view that God's ways are understood by finite minds. But Ephesians tells us who we have become in Christ. Joint heirs. You have salvation. Your sins are forgiven. You walk in the power and the authority of Jesus and God sees you as unblemished. What an incredible blessing. No wonder Paul ends chapter one by saying, God, I pray that we would be able to comprehend what is the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of the love of Christ. Because we're prone to miss it. We are prone to become too easily pleased. This is what C.S. Lewis said. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I hope by the end of our study together, we are not going to be accused of people who are being easily pleased, but we understand what it means to walk in the power of Christ. That's why 2013 can be your best year ever. You are the redeemed of God. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for myself that God will help us to remember this. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us that we might begin to comprehend what is the magnitude of the blessings that you've given to us. Father, I know there's a day coming when we're going to stand before you, and it's all going to make sense, and our only response will be, oh, And then we'll begin to sing, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Father, I ask that you remind us as a church we step into a brand new week. I ask that you remind us as we go forward that we matter to you. And that you are willing to meet us right at the point of our need. We matter so much to you that you gave your one and only Son. Thank you, Father, for that beginning, that beginning that came only through the blood of Jesus. We praise you and thank you for this as we go out now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Have a great week, church.